This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Ecocentric Law with Abhirash Naik. Hello, hello. Welcome to a fresh view of a life world. This week, we will delve into the growing movement called the Rights of Nature and hear from our second guest lawyer from India, Abhiraj Naik, who will delve into some really fascinating components of the Rights of Nature in India and the thrilling, often philosophical, new sets of questions that they open up. A little bit about the Rights of Nature first. The Rights of Nature is a legal tool that's now present in over 15 countries and 50 cities around the world that confers the rights usually given to human beings over to other forms of life. Why does that matter? Well, to put it quite bluntly, under the current system of law in almost every country, nature is our slave. I know that sounds a little bit extreme, but factually and legally, it's quite correct. Humans own the property of nature, can use it most often for their will within some environmental constraints. And importantly, that natural being cannot represent itself independently in a court of law. So what the rights of nature does is that it formally recognizes that ecosystems and their natural communities are not merely our human property, but rather that they have their own independent and inherent rights to exist and flourish completely independently of our use of them. Imagine that under the current system of law in your country, most likely a railroad, a corporation, a school can go and claim its own rights, but a river cannot. The first country that really led the way with this transformation was Ecuador in 2008 because it was the first country that enshrined the rights of nature in its constitution and acknowledged that Pachamama, aka nature, has the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate its vital cycles. So now, let's hear from Amheraj Naik to understand just why this jurisprudence approach is so groundbreaking. I think it would be really useful for our listeners to start off with more of a high-level perspective on the rights of nature, and then we're going to narrow in on the Indian context, which is where a lot of your expertise lies. In your experience in researching and practicing and teaching law and environmental law, what is it that you find particularly compelling around the rights of nature? How is it even different to other kinds of law, like animal rights law? I think Where I'd like to begin to respond to that is with an appreciation of the potential of this discourse. When I think about rights of nature, I really see the possibility of pathways that change paradigms of environmental law and policy, right? And uh, in some sense, this paradigmatic shift or the possibility of a new worldview 
is what really makes talking about and thinking about and, and fighting for the rights of nature so compelling because there really is a lot at stake here, though the immediate context of a conversation around rights of nature might be a polluted river or the rights of an animal which is being subjected to a cruel treatment or even in some cases a larger landscape or ecosystem. When one begins to admit of a legal entity who is not a human, one is really going back to that fundamental question of are humans separate from nature or not, right? And our uh, ideas such as rights, uh, our processes that are usually associated with rights, in some sense, extensible to the non-human or the more than human. And once one allows oneself to proceed on that pathway, you really are going to the heart of what for me is the cause of our current ecological predicament, which is this idea that we are separate from nature, right? You're beginning to acknowledge that, yes, what I thought was so distinct about human beings, the fact that we write or we speak or that we walk erect on two feet or that we bury our dead, each of these things in some sense finds its place in nature and even our most sophisticated technologies, our legal technologies, our legal recourses, our legal processes, uh, in some sense, are called for in the context of responding to, in a wholesome and full way, the nature that we are implicated within or a part of. So that, I think, is what makes this discourse so compelling. It really has the potential to change the frame, to change the basic assumptions, to even decenter the human in the inquiry process. And I think that's the kind of transformative logic and transformative canvas that is really sorely missing today and is urgently required. So I see this as, in some sense, responding to many other issues, problems, blockages, challenges that come much further downstream in the legal and policy landscape. And if we really manage to have an honest, courageous, fair and transparent conversation about rights of nature and, and really explore the limits of that conversation, of that discussion, we may discover that many of our earlier unassailable assumptions are now suddenly appearing quite weak or without sound foundations. So it's nothing less than, for me, a great entryway into the kind of world that I want to be a part of, the kind of world that, in some sense, I see outlines of, but which is still very much being held at a distance by the weight and inertia of our present degenerative and separate way of thinking about nature. That's a really interesting perspective. I feel like often when people think about law, legal structures, they think of, you know, piles of papers and heavy books and jargon and, and this notion that some legal mechanism or tool is actually more about a worldview and a way of seeing, and that through law, you can shift a society's notion of who they are, their relationship, or separation with and from nature. How is that different to an environmental law case where you're suing a company for polluting a river? Or in, in your experience, because you've done quite a lot of work in the animal rights arena, how does it appear different to a lawyer or a judge or a practitioner, the court? 
how does the rights of nature clause kind of go beyond that and address this much deeper necessity that you're speaking to? Sure. So I think in some sense, there's a substantive change, both in method and in the final content, or let me say the substantive elements of the claims or interests or rights and duties that are being considered, right? And while I think the substantive content, that is, who's affected by this, what are the conflicts in the rights, what are the trade-offs, what are the synergies, all of that is of great interest. I am personally more captivated by the entirely new set of questions that get opened up methodologically, right? Because once you have rights of nature featured in a legal context, you get to questions such as, how does one know what nature wants in this context? How does one find voice for nature? Who is a legitimate representative of nature? How can I trust what this representative of nature says when this representative of nature very much is a human being like all of us, is not more than human who he, she, or they are representing? How might one cross-examine nature uh, when nature is not really in the courtroom, right? And, and as a lawyer, I constantly have these very, very fantastical visions of a river flowing in through a courtroom and saying things to the judge. But that's really what the legal process requires once you're admitting a claim founded on the rights of nature, right? You need to know in a very, very direct, truthful, and intimate way uh, the subjectivity or where the right emanates from, right? And that is nature itself. And this changes our rules of procedure. It changes our rules of standing. It changes our methods of appreciating evidence. It changes even, in some sense, I would say, blurs the boundaries between the certitude of a legal science and the mystery and the possibility and the unknown of tradition, belief, culture, even spirituality and religion that more often than not are in some sense uh, surrounding that expression of the interest or the personhood or the right of nature. So these questions are of great interest to me because I think in some sense they represent the cutting edge of legal innovation, innovation around process. Uh, how does one bring in aesthetic, multisensorial, spiritual, multidimensional ways of truth-telling and narrative into a context where truth and accuracy are, are really reified, right? And if we do this well, even if we are just mindful of the interim learnings along the process, this could mean so many things for so many other contexts where the legal process is quite rightly accused of being reductionist. I mean, that's the problem with law. It's always playing catch up with the rich, dense, uh, textured nature of reality. And it's often cutting out and reducing that reality to a very linear, simplified narrative. And methodologically, these rights for nature cases are in a very real way bringing these challenges to the top of the legal system reform agenda as well. And they're forcing the participants of the process, uh, judges, lawyers, those who are supporting through evidence, paralegals, researchers, court reporters, analysts of the legal tradition, to be a bit more reflexive about how might we actually have a responsive legal system, a listening legal system, and 
a welcoming, open, evolving legal system. And for me, I mean, as a lawyer who has constantly been frustrated by the inability of the law to decisively transform social reality or in some sense has been angered by how the law is used by the rich and the powerful to further exclude the have-nots, I see rights for nature proceedings and the force fields around them as having great potential to, in some sense, uh, allow us to have an honest conversation about the kind of law and legal system we want. And the last point I'll add here is once one takes this to the constitutional level, right, the constitution has the distinction of being both the sort of supreme legal and political document. It's really both law and politics distilled at the same time. There you are getting into very, very weighty, but very, very important questions once again of who are we as a society or a community during this time of, let's say, a loss and breakdown, right? What kind of community do we want to be? What kind of justice system do we want to be? What kind of protections do we want to have in place? So, so yeah, for all of these reasons, these cases and these processes, whenever they appear, are of great interest to me, both as a practitioner and a researcher, not just of rights of nature, but of law and the rule of law and the connection between law and democracy in a very, very abstract sense as well. I think that law and science at large find themselves at a similar crossroads right now. As you said, law has often been seen as being incredibly reductionist. And I think that science has been accused of the same, the Cartesian way of thinking, the scientific method, the breaking up of the world into lots of little individuated parcels of concern. And yet both of those fields find themselves at a very exciting uh, juncture. With law, you have things like the rights of nature, as you've so eloquently described. With science, it's the more that ecological science, physics prods at the universe, the more it finds that everything does point to everything else, and it's impossible to take those pieces apart. And so, as you said so well earlier, rights of nature opens up a whole new set of questions. You know, who gets to speak on behalf of nature? How can we cross-examine nature? These questions are thrilling. And I don't even know if they always have a, a clean response and outcome. But I think getting society to discuss them is mostly, can mostly often be the value. And it's the same in science. These new sets of questions are opened up. Well, if this forest is not separate from X, Y, Z, then how can we really take it apart? And you also mentioned something else, Sarah, that I think is really interesting. It's in that question-asking process, it's no longer things that are happening behind closed doors. And as you said, who's around the table when we're discussing the rights of nature? It opens up a conversation with civil society versus judges and lawyers, and it's something that's very separate from day-to-day -day life because in answering those questions, it's often people who live close to the species or organisms or ecosystems in question that can answer, I think, to a better degree, well, what does this river want, right? Or what does this animal want? It's not a lawyer halfway across the country who can answer that often. It's the communities that have spent time with those animals, with those ecosystems. So there seems to be also an equalizing role in this new discipline 
Would you agree? Thank you. I, I think you put it uh, beautifully there, Alexa. And I, I really do see, like you, these analogous tectonic shifts or spaces for tectonic shifts in our uh, reconstitution of modern law and modern science. And I think, in some sense, the ruptures and the inspirations are coming from nature. It could be crisis related to nature, or it could be a resurgence and a renewed interest in, let's say, uh, knowledge that comes from the grassroots, that comes from the people, that comes from the land, that comes from non-authoritative hierarchical spaces, right? Uh, what one might call subjugated knowledge is, in some sense, getting freed up or finding more avenues for their expression. And uh, I think what really comes to mind, as you say, the ones who might best know how a river feels are, are those who've spent time in the river or those who, as per their worldview, believe they are the river. They are the kith and kin of the river. And in some sense, it's a fully integral worldview. From a Cartesian point of view, it might be, oh, that can't be, or uh, surely you're lying. But I mean, if you if you are willing to listen and be open to the starting premises of that proposition, that is, I am the river, you discover no matter which system of knowledge, I mean, I, I'm speaking from some kind of familiarity with, let's say, the South Asian context or the Indian context, but I've encountered this with colleagues and friends representing rivers and, and nature in, in South America or Africa. It starts from a set of premises and, and in some sense it has a integral logic that is sound all the way down, right? And I think what really bubbles through for me is this idea of listening, right? Uh, I think being able to listen well to nature or being open to listening and and having capacities for listening at all levels, at, at the individual level, at community levels, at the institutional level, and of course at the disciplinary level, is the way to in some sense, a love for fidelity to nature and rights for nature, be it in science or in law. And of course, with listening comes a certain kind of humility and openness, also a certain degree of courage, because once you're listening, you don't really know what's going to come. And that requires a leap into that unknown space of silence where, where something will come to you rather than knowing what you're going to say. So so all of these, I think, are uh, of great promise. And it is uh, sometimes a little confusing and by definition, sometimes a little fuzzy because I do think these are transition moments, right? You're seeing a particular kind of breakdown of ecosystems, the breaching of planetary boundaries. I think all of us are seeing how the climate crisis is unfolding in very, very distinct ways across the world. And at the same time, you're, you're beginning to see for the first time, I would say in a fairly concerted way, skepticism towards this Cartesian logic that has really been ascendant for so many hundred years now, right? Now, now finally, I think in the context of, for example, science and India, the people's science movement from the state of Kerala is now, I think, being accorded as much, if not more, attention and respect in, in official conversations around science. And because you're beginning to realize that things are have gone wrong, the script in some sense uh, didn't give us the performance that we were promised and some course correction is needed now. And, and so all of this is happening. It can be sometimes chaotic, sometimes confusing. I personally, as someone who is quite actively working for uh, 
a new world, see this as a moment of opportunity. Let's get into the Indian context. You mentioned the scientist movement in Kerala and others. From what I've understood, the rights of nature in India really took off around 2013. And you have an excellent paper that I'm going to link to in the show notes. And you excavated how one judge, single-handedly mostly, of course, with some support, and maybe even an interesting place to start is what you shared with me about the constitution itself, which is another way of looking at the rights of nature within India. Thank you. So I think before I get to the 2013-14 judgments of Justice S. Radhakrishnan of the Supreme Court, I find it useful to, in some sense, return to the Constitution and, and identify a duty of all Indian citizens. And this was introduced into the Constitution in the 80s. And in some sense, uh, India's former Prime Minister Indra Gandhi was partially responsible for these series of events, right? And it's a very specific duty which each Indian citizen, in some sense, is required to discharge on account of the constitutional obligation. And it says that each Indian citizen shall have a duty to have compassion for all living beings. And it's the only constitution in the world, and I've looked through quite a few of them over the years, which has this kind of duty placed on each citizen, to have compassion for all living beings, right? And uh, what your jurisprudence uh, teacher will tell you in your introductory uh, jurisprudence class will be that every duty has a corresponding right, right? So if every citizen has a duty to have compassion for all living beings, that means that there is a corresponding right in all living beings to have compassion shown to them, right? And uh, in some sense, I think that is one of the many reservoirs of strength that this judge, Justice Radhakrishnan, turned to when in a series of remarkable judgments in 2013 and 2014, he almost single-handedly created a new body of law that became applicable and binding across the country. And uh, there are a few features of this body of law. The most noteworthy is a legal constitutional mandate to move away from anthropocentric approaches to ecocentric approaches, right? I think that is the bedrock of this new jurisprudence of Justice Radhakrishnan. And one of the ways in which this somewhat abstract shift from anthropocentric to ecocentric happens is by according uh, rights for animals, rights for plants, rights for the more than human. And uh, these judgments delivered as they were by the highest court in the country, given that India is a common law jurisdiction, became automatically authoritative and binding on all of the high courts and uh, in some sense became binding law for the country. Because Court decisions in India are, in some sense, as valid a, a source of law as legislations. And, and a lot of our law comes from court decisions, including some very promising environmental decisions in the late 80s and even the early 90s, when the public interest litigation phenomenon was at its height in India. And the Supreme Court at that time declared that we have a right to the environment, so on and so forth. So for a number of different reasons, these judgments stayed where they were in an almost self-contained field for a few years. And uh, after Justice Radhakrishnan retired from the Supreme Court, his work was done. Researchers and activists across the country recognized that there 
was a, a body of case law that they could use in their activism, in their classes, in their petitions to the government. So all of that happened, but we didn't see any major movement in the courtroom until late 2016 and early 2017, when in the state of Uttarakhand, the High Court of Uttarakhand accorded rights to the River Ganga. It is this case which in some sense really grabbed the attention of the world. The earlier cases of Justice Radhakrishnan, by my reading, haven't yet been recognized fully for the wealth of wisdom, insight, and possibility they contain. And uh, part of my own work writing about these judgments and and sharing uh, my analysis of them is to, to give them that recognition they deserve. The 2017 judgment from the High Court, because it was also linked to a river which is world famous, uh, right? Everybody in some sense knows of the river in India called the Ganga. Uh, these are uh, images of people taking a dip in the Ganga or believing that their sins are washed away by taking a dip in the Ganga are, have, have circulated and are quite iconic. You know, people go to the banks of the Ganga to die in, in some sense believing that their journey to the next world will be undertaken on and through the river Ganga, so on and so forth. Very, very powerful, evocative narratives, metaphors, and traditions linked to the river. And, and when this judge, for some of the same reasons, accorded rights to the Ganga, this immediately caught global headlines. It caught a lot of attention nationally. The decision also was timed rather propitiously. It came just after developments in New Zealand where the Wanganui River, etc. were recognized as a, a living entity and India soon became a country that was referred to as a country where rights of nature or rights for nature are really taking off. I think the detail that sometimes gets missed out is the decisions of the High Court according rights to the River Ganga were in some sense stayed by the Supreme Court and what that means is their implementation was put on pause. It's not that they were overturned. It's not that they were overruled. It's not that they were affirmed. But the Supreme Court, in some sense, just put a pause on that. It's almost like freezing the situation. So it's a no-win, no-loss kind of scenario. It's a very contextual process that is available to the judiciary in India and in other jurisdictions where, uh, without delving into the heart of the matter, based on a consideration of the practicality of it, a pause is put on the actual judgment. Quick question, why would a pause be put on a case like that? Is it because the implications of fully accepting it would be quite dramatic for all the interests that are maybe taking water from the river or polluting the river? Or yeah, why would that be paused? Sure. So the primary reason it was paused was the government of the state of Uttarakhand, against whom the original judgment was given, immediately appealed the order in the Supreme Court and said that this is unimplementable. We cannot implement a judgment of this sort which accords these very grand rights to the river, to the glaciers, to the glades of the river, even the process that is contemplated in the judgment where you have a body, including some senior government officials who, who represent the interests of the river, uh, don't know how to do this. Let's say we even constitute the body we're not able to actually, uh, in a concrete, actionable way, surface what the rights of the river might be. Do you believe it is unimplementable yourself? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, uh, what we are learning from colleagues, uh, particularly uh, what I am learning from colleagues in, in Australia, 
in New Zealand, in South America, is it's difficult to implement precisely because we, we've not done this before, but it's not unimplementable. It requires time. It requires resources. It requires a sensibility that acknowledges that this is something new we're trying to do. We might struggle through it. We might have to learn from our mistakes. And you are seeing uh, these implementation innovations slowly uh, surfacing up. And I think a lot more research is also needed on what works and what doesn't. But it's not something that one has to throw their hands up even before starting and saying it's unimplementable, right? I think the challenge is in the details and uh, without even trying saying it's unimplementable, for me was a cop-out and an abdication of duty by a government. They could have been enlightened and progressive about it. I could have taken the judgment for its merits and, and tried to respond in a way that rose to the challenge of the occasion, right? But as you often see in the Indian context, the almost knee-jerk automatic reaction of the government was, oops, this places greater responsibilities on us. We are already understaffed, underfunded, and we find doing our work difficult, so let's resist. And that is usually the trajectory of uh, government response and legal cases in India where the court finds that the government has an additional responsibility or, or the status quo is just not good enough. The government will invariably fight against that legally. And if they can secure a respite, they will approach the Supreme Court for it. I do wonder in the Indian context if there's something that's quite distinct, which is the role of you mentioned traditions earlier and a certain spirituality because people from your nation are often much more entrenched in um, and entrenched in the in the positive sense i think rooted in these ways of seeing the world that are more animist that are more about relationships duties understandings of spiritual beings that are in the land i remember one of the cases that you share in your analysis of the judge was kind of delving into this mountain abode of a tribal god. And you gave this example, I'm probably pronouncing it not correctly, of the Dongria Khand, you'll correct me after, who are pre-modern tribal communities who believe that their supreme deity lives in these hills and that everything belongs to the supreme deity. And that therefore, this deity itself should have their own rights and be recognized by law. And so what was fascinating for me about this case was that there is a almost, it's a non-human life for sure, but it's also a spiritual God that's being given a right. And that for me really points to the depth of tradition and spiritual and religious belief in India. How do you see that playing into the rights of nature discourse? And the Ganges, as you mentioned, are it's a pilgrimage site for many people. It's a living being in and of itself. So what do you see in India, maybe as it would be different to Switzerland, where I'm sitting today, of the spiritual beliefs of the people and, and the possibilities for the rights there? Thank you. It's a great question. And I think it's a question where one has to tread uh, very, very carefully, not least because, as you might be aware, there is an upsurge of uh, right-wing, uh, nationalist, militant Hinduism in India at the moment as well, uh, which always has uh, the ability to co-opt any forays made into religion or spirituality. And I am someone who is sort of observer of what is happening with regard to the deterioration of more generally human rights and constitutional liberties in the country over the last decade. So I have a sense of discomfort with any very monolithic 
romanticization of India and its spirituality, right, at a, at a very big country level. I think being rooted in place, being rooted in local tradition, and acknowledging that in some sense there are many cosmologies, religions, languages, world systems, life worlds, to use a, a framing, uh, I don't even want to call it an idea, a force field for today, they are very much operative in India, right? And and even India's uh, journey as a rule of law a republic is very young. I mean, just 70 odd years since colonialism ended in this country. We had a constitution, which we continue to have today, from 1947. And, and even that constitution, in some sense, acknowledges that it's a layer on top of many other layers of an ancient civilizational order. And it's a beautiful constitution with some really great minds applying their energies to it. So I tread this terrain carefully, but if I may place all my cards on the table, I do think there's a lot to be gained by delving deeper into our past and delving deeper into these pluriverses that exist outside, or in some sense, it exists with the constitutional order, with the formal legal system. I, I feel we've not given that enough attention and enough space. And coming back to the Dongria Cone, in some sense, when the Supreme Court acknowledged this worldview, that for the Dongria Cone tribals, their god Niyam Raja lives in the mountain, is the mountain, protects the mountain, is them. It's all very confusing if you think of it again from a Cartesian or an individualistic starting point. But within their world order, it all makes sense. Even the Genesis story accounts for how all of this is possible at the same time. When the Supreme Court recognized that and in some sense said, we will ask you to be sovereign over this land that you reside over. We will ask you to take the decision. I think that was a, a very acceptable middle path where the court didn't have to necessarily say you are right or wrong or this is true and that is false. They just said that it is through participatory, through informed, through sovereignty promoting processes that we will allow for decisions as regards land diversion or, or resource use to be taken. I do think the alternative to our current mainstream extractive and diseased economic system, and in a sense also partially complicit as our political system, will come from animist or traditions that are connected with and are part of nature. And therefore, going back to them is very, very important and protecting them, preserving them, even acknowledging the critical importance of language, right? Which languages are fast disappearing in India. And India is really home to very many beautiful languages. The languages, in some sense, are just the tip of a much larger, richer, alive system of life, which has been around for a long time. And spending time with these, taking the good, but also being critical and not allowing in the bad would be the way forward. And uh, I think being fairly objective about what we want to do through this process of returning to tradition and uh, what are our criteria of acceptability for what must be allowed in and what must be blocked would be important. Just doing it in a very 
all or nothing kind of way, I don't think would serve the purpose. Thank you for that really important nuance that you shared about the particular, I think, religious spiritual context in India and, and really important considerations to hold in mind. And yes, the role of language in this kind of brings me to a thought, which is, as you know so well, there is an inherent tension within the rights of nature, which is that we are still trying to fit other forms of life, other uh, indigenous ways of understanding the world into a Western legal system. And it is still a Western tool and a Western construct. And so in terms of that, it, of course, has its own limitations. I had a thought. I would love for us to play with a little thought experiment for a second. Something that we've talked about in this discussion is how do these rights get implemented? Who gets to speak on behalf of these ecosystems? Is it the tribe that lives so close and within the mountain that they know and understand that they are the mountain? So the question I'm getting to here is, if you were to put together a board of representatives or a council for any of the current Indian rights that are on the table, whether they're being paused or not, you can pick any of them. How would you go about the process of finding the right human beings to have around the table who can even begin to answer that question? Okay, what does this river want? So as you said, this river gets to flow through the courtroom. Is it scientists, children, civil society? Who would you have there and how do you go about the process of selection? It is a thought experiment. It's a beautiful question. Um, I have some speculative and I must confess rather reactive initial thoughts. I'd really be interested in the viewpoint of children uh, for sure. And at the other end of that spectrum, the viewpoint of elders. And there's no doubt that the community has to be the first port of call, right? Uh, uh, scientists, artists, experts, lawyers, uh, spiritual gurus, so on and so forth, could come in as maybe a second circle. But one has to ask the land or, or start with, in my opinion, the place of the earth where the right is being contemplated. Just as a thought experiment, I would just land up at that space where the river originates and begin my look around to where's uh, habitation, where's authority, what are the records of knowledge holders? Uh, children, because in some sense, I think the process of getting hardwired into the rhythm of extractive capitalism has not yet happened there. And there is that element of uh, magic, that element of wonder, that element of imagination, all of which are amazingly important if we have to move from where we are to where we could be, right? To, to actually being in sensuous immediacy with nature, to use words from uh, Adorno and Horkheimer. And I think children, but also elders, and when I say elders, I don't mean necessarily the oldest in years. I'm inspired by sort of a reflexive journey around what does eldering mean, right? And, and for me, it is people within the community who have the courage and the equanimity to hold space, to allow for honest debate and dialogue, even disagreement tensions to come forth. The last point I'll add there is, I hope this doesn't come across as uh, some kind of token feminism on my part, but I really think women must be in charge of rights of nature discourse. I know there's an example in BC of a watershed board uh, with um, British Columbia in um, a river that we're currently looking at in terms of rights of nature, the Cowichan River. But I 
I am on the lookout for these different constitutions of representatives and who's doing it right. And, and I love how you describe the necessity for children and why, and then elders, not just being the oldest, but the you know, sense, this idea of wisdom, right? I guess the one missing piece for me, the dreamers, which would be the artists, the ones with imagination, the ability to open up imagination becomes crucial in these uncharted territories. And even with, for example, citizens assembly experiments that we're seeing in the UK or France or Scotland, so on and so forth, an important part of the stewardship process has been those who opened up imaginative vistas. And for me, those are usually uh, artists, right? These are poets, artists, dreamers, uh, in some sense, uh, seers. Uh, I don't know how one finds those in a context that is geographically proximate to the river or the landscape in question, but that kind of element would be, I think, important to for the container of deliberation and decision-making. I agree with you entirely. I think if we're talking about the rights of nature as a worldview or paradigm change vehicle, those who can often really catalyze that change are those artists and those people who are in touch with uh, much more creative impulses and who are able to translate things that are intuitively felt or seen in a way that's intelligible to more people. And, and it actually goes directly into my, my sort of point before I ask a final question we close, which is that, as you say, the rise of nature requires listening. It requires resolving tensions and very different viewpoints. It requires wading into a dense, muddy pool of intractable, sometimes philosophical questions. And that's why I think it's so exciting. It's because it, it's a tool that prepares us as a society in different parts around the world, to have a discourse and to develop a set of skills that are necessary no matter what for the transition that we find ourselves in. And the fact that it's based in also very practical, implementable law. So it has at once the paradigm change component, but it also has the you know really preventative harm component to it. I think that's really, really fascinating. As, as a final question, how would you advise any fellow Indians who may be listening to this podcast, to engage with this movement in the country? Where can they go? Who can they turn to? How can they learn more? What are the resources out there for them? So in some sense, I think a, a movement is being born in India right now. And I'm happy that uh, I have the privilege and the opportunity of partially being a part of it. And uh, apart from these court decisions, you're beginning to see alliances and networks promoting the rights of nature take root in, in India, right? So the Rights of River South Asia Alliance, which in some sense I have been actively promoting over the last uh, couple of years, is one example of a alliance that is firmly rooted in this conviction that nature is alive. Uh, nature, at the minimum, has rights that we accord to human beings, uh, maybe more rights, maybe different kinds of rights, but at least these basic rights, the right to continue to live, for example, all right, or the right to replenish oneself, the right to be protected against harm, those kinds of uh, rights uh, non-problematically must be in place, for example, for rivers. And uh, akin to that, the Global Alliance for Rights for Nature is considering an Asia or South Asia level hub. In fact, a colleague, Shristi, I was speaking with earlier today, that was the focus of our conversation, right? How might we 
in some sense, uh, prepare the ground for a regional hub for this. And even the idea of ecocide, which I'm making a few hat checks here while I can, right? That this idea of a crime against nature, which is a global movement and in some sense is not too far away uh, from a rights for nature movement, though I, I, I think they continue to have distinctive identities. For me, the ontological root of both is the same, which is there is life, that life has value, and that value must be recognized, respected, protected, promoted, given voice to, right? So I guess uh, connecting with some of these organizations, there's a coalition uh, for environmental justice in India. There's, uh, as I mentioned, the Rights of River South Asia. There's one of the organizations whose work I really respect. is called Kalpavriksh, again, a partner organization behind the Rights of River South Asia Alliance. There's a new emergent initiative about thinking through bioregional frames, right? So again, moving away from uh, human boundaries and borders to really allowing the earth or the land to tell you its uh, scope or its scape or its limit in that sense. And uh, each of these initiatives would be a, a good entry point into the movement. I think the organization that I co-founded in 2020 called the Initiative for Climate Action is also an entry way into this conversation and colleagues, friends, even those casually interested in being part of this uh, should feel uh, free to connect directly with me as well if any of these other contexts are difficult to access. Um, Alexa, I think the one point that I neglected to address, which has just come to me, is this tension between uh, Western construction of rights and, let's say, what would be Adivasi or indigenous approaches towards interest. And my sort of uh, very quick take on that is, I think one must call out how a particular notion of rights has a particular history, which is a Western history, but one must not ignore the fantastic achievements of the human rights movement over the last 60, 70 years, right? And I think, like with most other things, there is a possibility and a space to expand capaciously this idea of rights to, to ensure that its blind spots or its biases, or even arguably if it has some spurious elements to it on account of its Eurocentric genesis to account for those, right? I don't think anything is written stone that the word right will always be limited to this. And really expanding that so that, like the Zapatistas say, you know, many universes within one universe, one can do that many rights worlds within the idea of rights, right? We can think about things in, in that way. And, and so... I would say let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a lot that could be achieved by legally enforceable rights, constitutional rights, even moral and political rights that would be of great service to the environment. Absolutely. And we are living inside of this system now, right? And so advancing it as quickly as we can is, is of utter necessity. And there are ways, I agree with you, to blend both approaches. I'm going to link in the show notes all of those initiatives that you listed and touch points for people to get involved. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a really, really compelling conversation. I feel like in the next series, we should schedule a conversation just to speak about implementation and judge education and all of these other components of the rights that we obviously didn't have time to touch on today. Blessings and thank you for making the time. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Namaste and thank you to you for the opportunity and also the platform. I'm really grateful and it has been delightful actually 
preparing for and uh, in some sense launching into this conversation. And I too do see it as the start of many more conversations. I think lots and lots of good things are on the horizon, uh, fingers crossed, and it'll be nice to touch base on, on how this unfolds in practice as well. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks' time where we'll be going into the multi-species entanglements that you can find yourself in in our planet. I would love to hear from you, so please reach out to me on the lifeworlds.earth website where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon.